Hello and welcome to this episode of Tech Personal Finance. I am your host, Mike Troxel. Today, we're going to cover a topic that affects everyone listening. Though it may not be your favorite, it is estate planning. Not only are we covering estate planning, but we also have an expert guest joining us to shine light on the areas you need to know. Be sure to listen to the end as I give you some fun and potentially life-changing ideas that you do not want to miss. The first thing worth knowing is estate planning is not just for a particular type of person. As a matter of fact, everybody has an estate plan. The question is, did you design it or did the state legislature design it? If somebody becomes incapacitated or passes away, there is a plan for how their stuff is going to be handled. Not only does this include bank accounts and a retirement account, it could also include your cell phone, email, and social media accounts. A big one, if you have young children, is who is going to take care of the kids? Again, everybody has an estate plan. The question is, did you help design it? At a high level, estate planning is planning for when, not if, but when we encounter death or incapacitation. If you go into a coma for the next 24 hours, who is making the medical decisions? Is it your mom, your brother? Is it your next door neighbor? Is it somebody appointed by the court? With bank accounts, who is making the call? Who is able to write the checks to pay the bills? Who is able to pay the mortgage and who makes those decisions? I specifically remember being short on sleep in the hospital a few years ago, working with my uncle to help pay the bills for my grandmother. Thankfully, she did have her documents in order. Sometimes the term estate plan is daunting, so we can start at something easier and something friendlier. If you're listening to this, you probably have a retirement account, such as an IRA, Roth IRA, or 401k. Who is listed as a beneficiary? That is part of your estate plan. Another simple place to start is by pulling out your wallet and looking at your driver's license. Are you an organ donor? After I pass away, do I want to be buried in a certain cemetery? Do I want to be cremated? Do I want my organs donated? These are some difficult questions that we need to think about. One question, perhaps the simplest, is who is my money going to go to? A harder one, if you have kids, is when are they going to get it? If it's $10,000 that they might inherit, well, maybe receiving it at age 18 is not a big deal. But if we're talking about hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, I'm not sure about you, but most people don't want their children to receive those funds at age 18. Generally, an imperfect estate plan is much better than a perfect estate plan. Because these are heavy, daunting questions to answer, and it's not that exciting, this is a topic of finance where it's very easy and very common for people to delay. If you delay due to imperfections, Time goes on and people do not have an estate plan that they've selected themselves. It typically makes sense to get one in place, even if it's just 80% of the way there, and you can always go back and refine it. It's very similar with term life insurance policies, which also factor into the overall estate plan. If you're wrestling over a specific amount for term life insurance, generally it's best to just get something in place and then you can always get more or a different amount down the road. And now we're going to be joined by estate planning attorney, Patrick Echebeher, to shed light and provide his expertise on all things estate planning. Hi there, Patrick. Thanks for joining. Welcome to the show. 
Thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate it. So I defined estate planning a bit earlier in the episode, but I would love to hear how you define it or how you describe what you do. Yeah. So I consider estate planning, it can be kind of twofold. There's kind of what we would consider front end estate planning and then maybe back end estate planning. But front end estate planning would be everything that needs to go into planning to take care of minor children, setting up guardianships, estate tax planning, planning for capital gains and property tax planning, probate avoidance in the state of California and otherwise and even asset protection for young adults, beneficiaries, and adult beneficiaries moving forward. So maybe that umbrella would encompass front-end estate planning from everybody from just the young families getting started to older folks planning for retirement. And then back-end estate planning would be more estate administrations, where we help beneficiaries and trustees navigate both their duties as a trustee and their expectations as a beneficiary after someone passes away and the transfer of title of assets, either through a trust administration or through a probate court process. That's great. I'm glad you mentioned California. Obviously, to be clear, nothing that's coming out of your mouth is to be considered as advice on during this conversation. But you are licensed in California, correct? Are you licensed in Nevada as well or just California? That's right. Nevada and California. We, okay. we used to practice in Nevada for two or three years when we first got started. Gotcha. And so there, there are nuances state by state. So anything you'll discuss is generally centered around California. We have our own lovely California probate process that is a bit more arduous and expensive and time consuming than many other states. So yeah, I'll be primarily discussing California. But it is interesting to note that if you own property out of state, that you actually open yourself up to needing to do a probate in each one of those other jurisdictions. And so you could end up with kind of a complex situation unknowingly. Interesting. And so that's a decent segue. So one of the goals in estate planning that I often hear is to avoid probate. And sometimes in the financial world, there are terms that have major negative connotation to it. And maybe that should be the case, right? Or maybe sometimes they're overblown. So what is exactly probate? Absolutely. And I'm with you. It's almost become a marketing or a sales tactic, like a fear-mongering issue now in the estate planning realm. It's like, oh, well, you don't want your family to go through probate. Really, probate is just the default mechanism for changing title when we don't have another fashion to do so. So the simplest probate avoidance mechanism would be setting up beneficiary designations. Great examples of the most common ones are for retirement accounts, 401ks and IRAs and life insurance. So those are definitely beneficiary designation style assets where the assets transfer directly to the individuals free from this court process. Another probate alternative is the trust. I'm sure we'll get into that. And then the default is, is if there is no other mechanism, we need a judge to order where the assets go so that the bank can transfer the money so that the recorder's office can record the new deed. The issue is that in California, it takes about a year and there's a fee associated with it, whether it's the executor fee and the legal fees that are set out in the statutes. And it's a percentage of the gross estate value. So what ends up happening is we can kind of end up in an expensive probate unknowingly with a $2 million house in California with a $1.5 million mortgage, but the three to 5% fee is off of the 2 million. And so we could end up with kind of an expensive 
court proceeding just to get title to a child or a surviving spouse. Very interesting. So that three to 5%, what exactly is that for? Who does that go to? So there's one, one, three to 5%. And I say three to 5% because it's on a sliding scale based off of the value of the estate. And you can Google, you know, there's like, there's free estate probate calculators out there, but it's one of the executor fee. So the executor, the person taking the assets through probate would be able to charge that fee and the attorney will be able to charge that fee. Now, maybe the boogeyman is not as bad as we think because there are new alternatives, not to talk myself out of business, but I did stumble upon a new alternative that's doing a flat $5,000 probate. We're still in that year, year and a half long process. You still need to do accountings and it is maybe annoying, but there will be more alternatives coming out, I think, that'll start to try and flat fee this thing. Gotcha. Okay. So the attorney fee totally makes sense. And for the executor, I would guess frequently somebody involved in the estate would be an executor. So maybe that fee, there's maybe question marks around that, whether that is charged or not. What do you see in your experience? Is it typically charged by the executor or does it depend on who it is? It depends on who it is, but you're exactly right. You can imagine a situation where we have two adult children as the logical beneficiaries. And I'll just go back one step and say the probate process is there and California law is there so that if you pass away with zero documents, not a simple will, nothing, the state doesn't take your money. So there's always this fear that, oh my God, I'm just going to give my money to the government. That's not what happens. The laws of intestacy, which dictate how assets transfer, are there to approximate what most people want. So the state does have this default of saying, okay, if you pass away with a spouse and children, it goes one half the spouse, one half the kids. If there's no spouse and just kids, it's all equal shares to kids. So it, there is this approximation of what many family structures, you know, would normally want to pass their assets down in that fashion. So let's go back to two kids acting as executor or one child acting as executor, two beneficiaries, the executor fee is income taxable. So it's very common for the executor to waive that fee and just to leave that money in the pot because the inheritance is tax-free, assuming we're under mm -hmm. 12.5 or 25 million for a married couple, which is the estate tax exemption. But that is usually the calculation. One is, do you wanna charge your other sibling? So depending on the dynamics between siblings, Sometimes people are very adamant to take the fee just to more or less stick it to a sibling. If there's bad relationships and when there's good relationships, we usually keep it in the pot. Everybody takes their inheritance equally tax-free. Makes sense. So the two scary things I hear about probate, and one you just covered is it can be expensive. And the other is it is public or can be public. What exactly does that mean? Is that in the newspaper? So it does get published in the newspaper. There is a publication requirement that probably costs about $500 these days. So there will be a publication that a probate proceeding is being open. That's usually okay, right? Because there's going to be an obituary in the newspaper potentially. So that knowledge is usually not a concern for people. But what is concerning for people is the formal accountings that are public on the court probate websites. Those really do lay out everything that person owned at the time of their passing that will be passing through probate. So that can make people feel uncomfortable having that out there in the ether. Thank you for covering that. So jumping back a little bit, you mentioned uh, 401k beneficiaries and whatnot. 
So where do you draw the line in someone's situation? And I know it's a bit of a gray area between maybe a basic estate plan, let's say you're 30 single, no kids, or maybe you could have your retirement beneficiaries, maybe a healthcare directive, for example. So we'll call that a basic estate plan. So where do you draw the line between that and then maybe a full-on estate plan, which would involve maybe a will, a trust, and whatnot? I'd say there's two main triggers. One is owning real property in California or out of state. And two is having minor children. Those are the two main triggers that I see that would push someone to want to do a trust versus simple will with powers of attorney. And just when we put a bow on kind of this simple estate plan, which would be focusing on beneficiary designations on each asset category. So checking, saving, brokerage, all transfer on death beneficiaries name, IRA 401k life insurance, all have beneficiaries names so that there's nothing going through probate so that the remaining documents are there so that if there's an incapacity event, we do have an action person that can keep paying bills, collect rent, pay the mortgage, and also work with the doctors. Those powers of attorney are there to avoid a conservatorship process, which is again, kind of an arduous court process. So that would be the exact example of the simple estate plan versus the wills, trust, powers of attorney combo, which would be the fit for real property ownership and minor children. Real property, there is a transfer on death beneficiary designation that can be put on each property in California and Nevada. Other states do not have this. And that's a kind of a recent, a recent option. So there is the possibility if you have one adult child, could technically put them on the house as a beneficiary. There are shortcomings to that and risks associated, but that is a TODD does exist. But when we have minor children, you obviously don't want to put minor children on as beneficiaries of a house. And so you do want the trust to avoid the probate process on the transfer of the house. And even more importantly for most people is you want your successor trustee to be this person that you entrust with being the financial caregiver for the children, if something ever happened to you and your spouse, or just you if you're single, they would take title to the assets as a fiduciary on behalf of your children and manage the assets until some age that you think is more appropriate than 18. So that's also the benefit when I say planning for minors is that we can keep assets in trust well into adulthood, getting kids out of college, grad school, kind of off to the races before giving them access to their entire inheritance. Makes sense. Okay, so we drew a line between a basic estate plan, no kids, no house, versus a full estate plan. We covered probate, the negatives of that. Isn't there a line in California where if your assets are below a certain amount that there's a more streamlined, less expensive probate? So it's not even a probate process, actually. And that just went up. That dollar amount just went up from, call it 150000 to 188000 So that that's very, very recently gone up. And that is the threshold for value that you can transfer using a small estate affidavit, which is a super helpful document. Even if you have a trust, but we find a checking account or some account with $20,000 in it, we're not going to need to open up a probate and use an attorney to transfer the title to that you will be able to use a small estate affidavit, which is a one-page document that you will present to the bank and they'll actually transfer title to the named beneficiary or to the legal beneficiary 
with that one document. But one thing to be aware of is that out of state, that dollar amount is like 25,000 in a lot of cases, 15,000. So you could think you're safe with an $80,000 account in Nevada, but you'd be not safe and that would need to go through a Nevada probate. Interesting. I'm glad you mentioned that timing of an assets passing to a child, because a lot of times in estate planning and the conversations I have, the focus is on the individuals and who, right? Who is playing what role? But oftentimes we forget that when is also a variable, right? We may know we want our kids to get the assets, but we may not want them to get them when they're 18. What are some, just as far as your average client, what are the average ages that people select for the kids to get the assets? And it's kind of interesting because that has shifted over time. When I first started practicing, I guess, well, 11, 12 years ago, the age was like 22. And it was just, eh, get the kids out of college. The day out of college, 22 years old was the, the year for that. But these days, I'd say 25 is kind of the average and minimum. And then a lot of people are also starting to implement the one third at 25, 30, 35, so that if a kid blows the first third, they have two thirds to kind of learn a very serious lesson from. And then the third option, which is actually a pretty amazing and powerful drafting mechanism, is just having the child become trustee of their own share at age 35. And this is a great fit for maybe a higher net worth client with a lot to protect or just something substantial to protect by keeping the assets in that child's subtrust, let's call it. It is still the parent's trust with a new tax ID number. The child is the trustee of their own share. They have asset protection for the remainder of their life. And they, if, let's just say the, the concern for parents, what if they're in a divorce? Would they lose half of their inheritance in the divorce? This is a means of helping children maintain separate property of the inheritance, even if they don't have a pre or post nuptial agreement. Interesting. There's something I hear often as a reason to delay getting an estate plan or updating an estate plan is that people believe things will be rosy with their family and their family will get along perfectly. And, you know, I don't need to spend the money on going to Patrick again. My kids all get along. How often do you see or hear about family conflict? I know it, from my seat, I know it definitely happens a lot more often than we think. <laughs> yeah, that's the hardest part of the practice, maybe, is seeing those conflicts and dealing with them. But as you can imagine, I mean, families are dynamic and a lot of these feelings are so deep-seated from years and years and years prior. These are not legal questions most of the time. There are no issues, I mean, it's amazing how many times the issues are surrounding personal property are surrounding mom's yadros or something like that, just something more emotional. And it's not even dollar amounts, but so I guess a short answer to the question is there's a fair amount of family conflict and maybe it's because they're so, it's so sad to see that it sticks out in your mind because there are substantial amount of trusted and probate administrations that go off without a hitch that are so smooth where kids work together to administer a parent's estate, distribute to each other, and the relationships are strengthened. And it's, it's really a nice process, but the bad ones stick out so much because they're so unpleasant that then it feels like it happens 
fairly often. In my world, there's a lot of talk about behavioral finance. And by one definition, you could say the difference between the by the book stuff versus the personal side and what really happens in real life. In how it relates to estate planning, I see a lot of delaying setting up an estate plan, you know, kicking it down the road, or even maybe after engaging in the process, delaying or dragging it out. Maybe it gets done eventually, right? Maybe, maybe not. Is there anything that you do or, or your colleagues do to help people in this regard and move things along? It's interesting you say that. That's I view it at this point in the practice because there are people that we drafted with, you know, we met, we got all the information, we created the estate plan, we reviewed the estate plan, and it's been years. But there's always something that comes up before signing. There's psychologically something that is very off-putting about signing estate planning documents for certain clients. And so I almost view a value add that we bring to the table, aside from the legal drafting and kind of putting real-world issues into legalese and legally binding documents and implementing them, there is this secondary value add of almost being like a personal trainer, where it's like, we all know we should work out and we should eat somewhat healthy. But the having a third party force you or the accountability of going to the gym and having a third party there, knowing that if you don't go, someone knows. I sometimes, without nagging clients, view it as part of the value add, as part of the product is making sure we get it done and just kind of staying in front of it and staying in front of it until it gets done because it is like working out. Totally get it. And in practice, what does that look like? Is it just you know, an email follow-up every so often? Yes, I'll try and put, and I'll, I'll communicate this at the offset as part of the process. And I'll say, this is not naggy. This is just simply keeping it on the calendar, keeping it on the radar. So I'll try and put a calendar reminder myself so that after a month, Maybe I'll reach back out for an initial, hey, do you have any questions? And then spur some communication and push it forward. Maybe there's more review. And then another two weeks after, another calendar reminder that says, hey, shall we get together? (laughs) Notarize. Yeah. So something like that. And I mean, I hear you as one of the values. And I totally agree on my end. Where early on, if I was speaking with a prospective client, I would maybe tell them about all this fancy jargon and things I could, you know, magic tricks I could do for them, their finances. But I quickly deleted that from my pitch. And I do highlight that aspect. You mentioned, hey, accountability partner, we help bug you to make sure you get your stuff done. Exactly. So let's say you've done a great job. You finally completed your estate plan. You have your trust. How important in California is it to actually fund the trust or title your assets under the trust? Very important would be the short answer. And we do have all sorts of backup documentation. So the trust will work together in unison with your pour over will. And this is, I just want to preface all this by saying, we're not going to rely on any of these backup documents. Some people think, okay, I have my pour over will. I have my declaration of trust, which I'll talk about. Why do I need to fund it? I'll just, it'll pour into my trust upon my passing. And that's not what we want to do because the the pour over will and the declaration of trust work in a way where we have to petition the court to pour it into the trust. And so it's much easier to transfer title to your assets in life than it is to petition the court 
or to pay an attorney to petition the court and transfer assets into the trust. So let's just say the real property just needs to be deeded and a schedule, a list of trust assets is not sufficient to actually transfer assets into the trust. That's another misconception. You actually need to physically transfer the title to each of the assets, which is deeding real property from, you know, you and your spouse's joint tenants to you two as trustees of your trust. That's how we remove that from going through probate, get it into the trust ownership, bringing the certification of trust, which we provide to someone like Mike, they will update your accounts into the name of the trust. And I will say that's where a good advisor is super helpful and beneficial is that they quarterback a lot of this stuff. They issue spot and they say, hey, because we don't have insight as the attorneys into beneficiary designations, how assets are actually titled, unless clients really you know, make the effort to bring in bank statements and this and that. Your advisor is the inside man or woman that sees exactly how things are titled and knows what needs to go into the trust versus what needs to have beneficiaries designated in order to get proper title. Yeah, I'm glad you covered that because I knew about the pour over will and I wasn't sure exactly how they work together, right? It's like, why do I, I know I should fund it, but why? Because I have this other document. So you're saying the other, the pour over will, which recommends to the court to move the assets into trust, that in itself is no guarantee. And I imagine that could take time and money as well to get that taken care of. Exactly. It'll take some time, take some money, which, you know, we'll try and save both of those in a normal administration because that is part of the calculation. You know, you're like, okay, why would I spend money on an estate plan in life when it does not benefit me at all? So that's the calculation. If you're trying to be pragmatic is you spend money in life to avoid the time and costs associated with all of these kind of wastes after. And to be clear, the pour over will works hand in hand with the trust. And it also works hand in hand with the declaration of trust, which is based off of a famous case called the Hegstad case, where it just says, and the declaration is no more complex than I intend all of my assets to be held in the name of my trust. That's what it says. And it came from a case where someone said that the attorney petitioned the court, the court found that to be sufficient to actually transfer the assets into the guy's trust after he passed away and avoid the probate process. So we always implement that document, California, Nevada, those are both kind of a body of law now. So that's part of the the law. Similar to a tree falling in a forest, how good is an estate plan if nobody knows about it? That's interesting. Yeah, very bad. It's exactly that. It's a completely private document, which is very uncomfortable for some people because we live in such an age where everything is in a database somewhere. Someone has this somewhere. And with a trust, I mean, you you physically wet ink sign. We do not have mobile notary allowed in California. So you have a wet ink signed paper hard copy of this trust document in your home office. And if you tell no one it exists, no one will know. And they'll maybe know because they'll pull a deed to the house and see that the deed is held in a trust that exists somewhere. And maybe that'll have the attorney's name on there so they can work backwards from that. But you're creating quite a labyrinth and just a practically very hard administration versus telling your successor trustee, you don't need to show them the documents if you're a more private person. You don't need to show the kids the documents if you're a more private person. Some people do. But just putting them on notice that it exists, you keep your important documents in a safe deposit box, home office, 
someplace logical, not in a shoebox underneath newspaper from the 1940s, which we've had flying stew, so that when someone finds it, they'll find this folder has the attorney's name on there. You have your advisor's name, your CPA's name in there. A list of trust assets is extremely helpful. Again, if you have an advisor, they'll have a lot of that for your family. So that's super helpful. And then contact information for anybody listed in the documents is another thing because you don't know if it's going to be a neighbor or someone in some weird circumstance would find these documents. You want them to be able to reach out to an action person, to someone involved. That's very good advice. Store it somewhere logical, not, you know, don't bury it in the backyard or anything like that. Okay. So you have the trust, you have the estate plan, you store it somewhere logical, you tell people it exists. What about the original versus an electronic copy? Like say I did not listen to Patrick. I did bury it in my backyard, but I saved a copy to the cloud and my, you know, brother has a copy. These days, and we always scan in a PDF so that we have it as the attorney in the client file. And then I love to send it to their advisor as well, which is another backup for them. And so they'll have a digital copy, advisor has a digital copy, I have a digital copy. And so at 20 years from now, someone calls and says, hey, did you do my grandma's trust? I'll pull up the name and lo and behold, I have a digital copy. And so that is a huge benefit because I'd say 98% of all transactions that we need to deal with with trust can be done from a digital copy these days. So the original does have a very special place in the eyes of the law. And if it's ever contested, we'll want that. But for all intents and purposes, the digital copy is, is hugely helpful. And I'm glad you did, again, mention the location because in one of our reports we make for clients that tracks their financial life, that is one aspect we've started adding is in addition to who are your trustees and beneficiaries and whatnot is a location. Hey, mm. let us know where it is. You know, in the event something happens, in the event no one can find it, we now have the coordinates to where you buried it in the backyard. One last thing that's interesting that I do see come up is clients will put it in their safe deposit box. Makes a lot of sense. Shove it in there but they don't put anybody on the safe deposit box to have access to it. And so the banks will not talk to anybody unless you're either named on there and the document that proves that you have the power to get in the box is actually in the box. And so you could end up in a kind of a, an unnecessarily catch 22 situation. <laughs> so uh, it is helpful to name the successor trustee as an allowable person on your safe deposit box. Yep. And I'm glad you brought up digital copies. That's a decent segue. One relatively newer area in estate planning is the topic of digital assets. Would you mind talking a little bit about that? That has been, so we always do an assignment of personal property and some of these digital assets, well, they're all included in that. So in a worst case scenario, if you're, let's just say, like in my case, my wife has all of our passwords. I do not know our iTunes or Apple passwords. I don't know any of that stuff. So I would not have access any pictures or anything like that. So she's written it all down for me so that if anything ever happened, I would be able to access our normal, well, digital life. And we don't have any crypto or anything like that. So those assets present their own challenges, which, which I can get into. But from your basic digital life, the easiest and most helpful thing is to list the passwords for certain things. If you don't want it to be a super sensitive document, I mean, just hard copy, list it and put it in with your documents so that there's not something floating around that's very hacker friendly. 
But the default is that if you did not list your passwords, your successor trustee through the trust document will be able to access your Facebook account. They'll just have to go through corporate Facebook. They'll have to go through corporate Apple and they will have access through your, through your trust as, as that role. Okay. So has that become a standard piece of the puzzle to add into the trust documents? Yes. Yeah. So the assignment of personal property is how we get all of these things that don't really have title into the trust or jewelry, heirlooms, these things that we can't really change title. We assign it to the trust. That assignment now has broad language. It talks about digital assets, goes into kind of some detail um, without limiting the scope, goes into detail on, on what that does, it transfer to the trust as well. All right, Patrick. So earlier we discussed the difference between what we were referring to as a basic estate plan with maybe beneficiaries and whatnot versus a quote, full estate plan with maybe trust and will. And we've been referring to a standard or living or revocable with an R, revocable trust. At what point does it make sense for people to complicate things and maybe add an advanced planning or irrevocable trusts and whatnot? Is there a life stage, business ownership, asset levels? Yeah, there can be quite a few trigger points. At the most basic level, what we're talking about is avoiding the 40% estate tax on the transfer of assets when someone passes away. And that exemption amount is the amount of value that an individual or a married couple can pass at death tax-free. And so for historical purposes, that was as low as a million dollars or even lower. And then it slowly has been creeping up to 3.5 to 6 million. And it is currently at 12.4 million per spouse. And the other aspect of that law that recently changed in 2012 was portability, which allows spouses to utilize each other's exemption. So really a married couple can have, call it 25 million more or less to pass at death tax-free. So if we're well under 25 million for a married couple, then you likely don't need to complicate your estate planning the issue is that that law will be in flux for the remainder of our lives and our net worth will be in flux. And so there's these trigger points where if those two ever start to interact or get close, and it's kind of an interesting time just because that law will sunset in 2025 if Congress doesn't act to either pass a new law or do something. So 2024 would be a really good time to take a look at your assets get a sense of what your net worth is with houses, retirement accounts, life insurance proceeds, checking, saving, brokerage, all that stock equity in companies and assess what your net worth is and talk to your advisor, CPA, attorney to come up with a kind of, they'll have a good sense of where that law is going or at least a probability of it changing. The default is that it will go back down to $6 million per spouse, so call it $12 million for a married couple. And so all of those folks in the realm of 12 million and above may be very interested in doing some more intricate planning. And the goal there is to leverage gifts to get assets like a safety valve, get assets out of your estate into the estate of the children so that that future appreciation happens in the estate of the children. And we use up, and what I should have started with this, the estate tax is unified with the gift tax. So if you gift $5 million. Now you have $20 million for a married couple at death. If you gift 25 million in life, 
you use up all of your exemption and you have nothing left to give at death. And that law is a use it or lose it type of law. So before the law changes in 2025, there will be many people trying to fund irrevocable trusts in order to get assets out of their name while they can tax-free and get it out to the kids and grandkids. And there's a myriad of different ways to do that. So for very general guidance, free kids, free real estate, California, below 150K of assets, there is an argument for having just a basic non-trust estate plan. Once you cross some of those thresholds, strong arguments a case for what we were referring to as a full estate plan, including will, trust, and whatnot. And then maybe beyond that, keep in touch with your financial team, right? Advisor, CPA, estate planning attorney, as your situation changes, as those laws change regarding those exclusion amounts, at some point, it might make sense to complicate things and start taking advantage of some more advanced planning. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. We're almost going to let you off the hook here. Maybe one or two questions. How often do you see folks take care of their estate plan for maybe more positive or proactive reasons versus negative reasons? You know, one example is sometimes the most motivated people I see taking care of their estate plan, maybe they've had a negative experience in the past with family situations. So therefore they have a lot of motivation to avoid that. I'd say those are the most motivated folks. I think the most common, even more common than I just had my first kid, we just bought our first house. That is a very common client, but even I th I'd say even more common or even more motivated than wanting to protect a minor child and set up your guardianships and do all that stuff is the person that just got done with their parents' administration after losing a parent and realizing what a nightmare scenario that was, and they will get that done very quickly. And then obviously if there's a health issue, they will be very motivated to do their documents as well. And then for whatever reason, after this entire life of traveling and driving on the freeway for 40 minutes each way to work, there's one trip to Tahiti that will set someone off and they need their documents done before that flight takes off. And so it can be something absolutely arbitrary like that too, but we do get those very motivated folks too. That's great. You might need to keep a record of your client's travel plans in case. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I really appreciate you joining. I'll be sure to link to your site or blog in the show notes. Are there any other places people can find you online or any other helpful resources maybe you could direct listeners to? You know, our website at shalawgroup.com. I'm not a huge Instagram, Facebook, so we're not the most tech out there folks. But yeah, just go to the website. And if anybody ever wants to chat, they can reach out via email or just book a book a calendar appointment on my calendar. Alrighty, we appreciate it. Well, thank you again to Patrick for taking time out of his day to shed light on this topic for us. That interview was brought to you by the Weekly Vest, a short and sweet email newsletter containing one chart one quote and one tweet. I don't know about you, but I received too many emails and too many long emails. That's why I started the Weekly Vest, short, sweet, and valuable. You can read it in 30 seconds or less. You can sign up at theweeklyvest.com and let me know what you think. At the top of the episode, I promised you a potentially life-changing idea around estate planning. So here it is. 99.9% .9 of the information we hear about estate planning is what we've already gone over in this episode. Just so that does not leave you depressed, I want you to think about something before you go. After you've taken care of the items we discussed, 
what if there was a cooler way to do estate planning? What if we can make it more fun, more meaningful, and more impactful? Instead of thinking about being the one dying, think about being the one who is still around. What would you want? If you lost a loved one, what are some things you would want? What are some things that you would pay a lot of money for? Their life story in an interview format? Love letters? A list of all their favorite things and recipes? Amazing memories of time you spent together, whether it's with photos or videos? Maybe it's old voicemails. There are definitely things, aside from more time, that we would love to have from our loved ones that have passed away. This is an idea I found very fascinating. I've heard of some parents snagging up an email address for their kid when they're born. They will give it to them when they're 18, and every so often they will write them an email, an update, or a note. Others will write handwritten notes to their kids. Some will do video recordings and interviews. I've heard of one parent creating audio recordings. Frankly, this is one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast and some other projects. This idea really hit home for me when a favorite sports media personality passed away unexpectedly a few years ago. It was a very sad story, leaving behind his wife and young children. An interesting thing that I realized, despite the sadness, was this. How cool is it for these kids that there are countless articles videos, podcasts, and other forms of content that their dad created. Though there will always be a void without having or getting to know a parent, they can certainly get to know them in some capacity. For many, there are people out there that we feel like we know, even though we've never met them. It could be from movies, interviews, books, and so on. Have you ever thought, I've never met them, but I feel like I know everything about them, and I feel like we would be best friends if we knew each other in real life. This is not necessarily a delusion either. If you've watched dozens of hours of somebody's daily vlog on YouTube, you probably have a pretty decent idea of who they are. It is important to remember that not everything has to be done for the sole purpose of preparing for when that day comes. Obviously, we don't want to neglect spending time with our loved ones today, so try to avoid this. Dad was never around, but it sure looks like he spent hundreds of hours making sure we knew who he was after he was gone. There is a balance as there is with everything. I wrote a piece on this topic called Beyond an Estate Plan, which you can find at our blog, modernfp.com slash blog. On the bottom of the page, you'll be able to see a list of ideas for you to consider doing. I will also link to the article in the show notes. As always, I hope you found this episode helpful. If you have any questions, please reach out. I would love to hear from you. The easiest place to find me is at miketroxel.com. That's T-R-O-X-E-L-L. There I have links to everything I'm working on. You can also find links or resources for this episode at techpersonalfinancepod.com. 